You're at the Coaching Inn, 3D Coaching's virtual pub where we enjoy conversations with people who are engaged in the world of coaching. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of The Coaching Inn. I'm Claire Pedrick and today it's absolute delight to be in conversation with my friend Kirsty Drummond Papworth, who we met we met years ago, didn't we, Kirsty? Yeah, many years ago. And now we're talking on Zoom. I know. Yeah, now we're here and we're talking about your new book, uh, mm-hmm. which is called Compassionate Leadership for Individual and Organisational Change. But we're also talking about you as a human being. So welcome. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, tell us a bit about your story. What got you to this point? Ooh, um, I suppose... I suppose it begs a question about why why an interest in compassion and then why write a book. Um, the second one, I, I probably, to some extent, still asking myself because um, it's quite a hard work writing a book, as you know, Claire. Um, yeah. So I, I suppose back in 2012, just after the Olympics, um, I was working in a very different industry. I was working in a, in a wine, the wine industry. And I was I was made redundant in a very a very public and quite unpleasant way. It was, um, I had to be very open. It was a very dark time for me. Um, and one of the, the glimmers of light that happened was um, one of the first people who contacted me when the news broke about, about me leaving the company was someone who I'd made redundant um, a few years earlier. And I was quite surprised by it at the time. And I'm not saying I did a fabulous job. I think I was just very struck that there's a vast difference between what we do and, and how we do it. And that, that planted a seed, if you like. My, my interest began there. And then... I decided to retrain both in uh, psychology and also in coaching and behavioural change and system dynamics, as you know. Um, and when I proposed a dissertation back in 2013 on looking at organisational compassion and something called effective commitment, we can talk about it later. It's really about whether people want to stay in an organisation. I was When I proposed this, I was told it, it wasn't really a suitable topic. Um, Luckily, I found a, a supervisor who disagreed and was was happy to work with me on it. Um, but I was really curious about how compassion impacted people at work, whether through its its presence or through its absence, which is I'd felt both in a very short space of time, if you like. Um, and that that dissertation I was writing is back in 2013-2014. And it's it's actually been really lovely to see how compassion has become more mainstream. Um but I also, I think part of the reason I wrote the book in particular, so I did research in compassion, uh, both from psycho- uh, in my psychology master's, but also my behavioral change master's. But then I really wanted to write the book. And the reason I wrote the book was because I wanted to write the book that I couldn't find. Um, I could find Buddhist texts, which, which were interesting to me um, anyway. And I could find management books that, that were... Um, a bit waffly they just they talked about how it's a good thing but they couldn't really say why and they couldn't really say how to do more of it It, they they often felt a bit vague for me so so I wanted to write a book which was grounded in research grounded in 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 good robust science mine and other people's but which also had a real practical element people could take it and start using it you know not, not even have to read the whole book and start using it it's something that they could they could use straight away so so that's that's what's brought me to to here today wow wow yeah and writing a book is quite a thing it is yes <laughs> congratulations thank you thank you 
It's a hard thing to do, actually, and it's interesting how different the writing is from writing research. Um, but, you know, when you're writing research, there's a, there's almost a formula of the, the way you have to write it. And then when you are translating your research into a book, you really have to put yourself in, into the shoes of the person who's going to be reading it. Who probably doesn't want to read a whole host of academic papers. They want to read something that's interesting, useful and practical and accessible. So, so it's a very different process. Indeed, indeed. I don't know about you, but I find finding my voice in a new book is it takes months and months and months. And then once I've got it, it's easier to drop stuff into the voice. Absolutely. Actually, that's interesting. A friend who has published quite a few books was sort of ghost editing and reading it for me, if you like, in the background. And he said one day, I can hear your voice now. And it's exactly that. He he said he finally could actually hear me rather than somebody trying to, to write an academic paper. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's wonderful, wonderful. So why should coaches read it, Kirsty? Ah, well, why I, should anybody read it? Why should anybody, why should anybody read it? Um, so I suppose why should, why should anybody read it and any practitioner read it? You know, I think the world, the state it's in at the moment, the one thing, goodness, we need more of is compassion. Um, and I think particularly for coaches, there's a couple of things. One is it's it's evidence-based um, and also, as I say, it's designed to be practical. Um, and that practical is important for coaches, partly because if you're working with people who are in leadership positions, then it will help you to be able to understand what they're going through and to give them tools as well. Um, it also, the book includes quite a few reflective prompts which might be useful for, for coaches. Um, so it's useful for the coach themselves. Um, I remember when I first went to, to Henley to do my, my certificate in coaching, and one of the, the first questions that they asked is, why did you want to become a coach? So everybody wrote their, their essay, why they want to become a coach. And then the next question they just wrote was, why? Because they were trying to get you to understand your own motivations and your own hidden dynamics around it. And I think there's, there's some important things for coaches to reflect on in here. Um, and it's partly also around, as a coach, we often want to, we're in the, one of the helping professions, we often want to support other people. And there is a danger, and I talk about this in the book, where you can you can do compassion too much and you end up tipping into altruism. And altruism is where you are doing things for other people, helping other people, but to the detriment of yourself. Now, some people, um, Comte, who, who originally came up with the word, he thought that was a good thing. He actually said that basically systems and um, groups of people are more important as a society and, and the, the individual is less important. So he would probably be quite horrified by the way um, a lot of individualism is is huge at the moment. But what, what I'm trying to make sure coaches understand is that you need to look after yourself as well, because if you are tipping into altruism, you're wrung out, you're exhausted, you're you're that sort of proverbial discourse wrung out on the side of the sink, you're, you're no use to anybody really at that point. And I think that was also partly my learning in the book as a coach is that I love coaching. I, I really enjoy seeing what people can come up with and how, how they can come up with their own ideas and how they can change things. But there's a point at which you have to look after yourself. Um, I, I remember so right when I was writing the book, thinking about that phrase, you teach what you most need to, to learn. And I kept thinking, oh, maybe maybe I'm just a really horrible person and I have to learn how to be nice. Um, and I actually think my biggest learning was how to be compassionate and not altruistic. Um, so I, I yeah. think it's important for coaches. Yeah. That's so interesting because my first day back from my holiday, I would, mm. was running a supervision group 
and there was a question about empathy. Mm. And I think that there's a huge confusion between all of the different things. And I think Brene Brown has written some really good stuff about empathy and sympathy, but it's still not clear enough. And I, you know, there's no one accepted definition of of, of any of these these concepts. But for me, empathy is that ability to, to put yourself in somebody else's shoes and feel how they might be feeling. And then if you like empathy plus action, is how you end up in compassion. If you, interestingly, when people sometimes talk about compassion fatigue, um, it's actually empathic distress fatigue. It's, it's less snappy uh-huh. as a phrase. Yeah. Um, but it's when people feel how someone else is feeling that don't do anything about it, that you that's when you feel exhausted and worn out and it's bad for you psychologically and physiologically. Compassion is actually very nurturing and useful. So um, I actually wrote something for People Management magazine last month about basically we should stop trying to have empathic leadership because it's not very good for you. Um, compassionate leadership is more useful. Yeah, so you have got the most amazing set of pictures, haven't you, <laughs> on page 49. Um, mm-hmm. And I held up your book to the camera and said, look at this, it will really help explain. And really interesting, <laughs> I was with my dad last night and he said, oh, what are you doing tomorrow? And I said, oh, I'm doing a... Uh, uh, thing and I was telling him about the pictures mm. and he went that really makes sense oh so, so listeners if you only buy Kirsty's book to 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 really get a nugget of that chapter about the the misunderstandings between empathy and compassion it will be worth having bought it oh thank you Claire and and I think it's also about you know, kindness and sympathy and pity. They're, they're, I mean, they're related, right? They're all other orientated, and with the exception of kindness, they're all to do with relieving someone else's suffering. But if you if you're using them and not understanding the nuances, then you're in unconscious incompetence. So exactly, what I'm trying to do is get people to understand the nuanced differences because then they can apply them more easily as a coach or as as anybody else. So. Yeah, and. Actually, it doesn't matter what you call them. What matters is that they're not the same. Yes, yes, beautifully put, actually, yes. Um, so I won't spoil it what's on page 49, but listeners, <laughs> become readers. It is really, really worth it. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just waiting for book sellers to start phoning me up and saying, we have a batch of your books for Sunday Pierce to ripped out page 49. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it'll be totally my responsibility. I'll take the fall <laughs> on that one. So what's what's special about the power of compassion? Ah, oh, well, see, that's a dangerous question because there is there is so much evidence for it that we could probably do an entire podcast just on that one question, but but I'll I'll behave. Um and a oh, lot... don't don't behave. <laughs> okay um a, a lot of the evidence has really appeared in the last 15 or so years it's, it's a very new it's a very new area and it's it's really calling into question this whole notion of compassion having a dubious reputation which i as you know i talk about a lot in the book um what do i mean by that well i mean the example of being told my dissertation topic wasn't suitable for study um is a, is a micro example of a much wider issue um Compassion is often seen as soft, it's seen as fluffy, a bit a bit weak, uh, you know, the form of um knit your own granola type leadership for people who can't actually be be tough. Um, but the reality is actually completely different. Um and and the way that I, I often split it is into individual and organizational benefits, although obviously there's a there's an overlap both ways in both of those things. Um 
I mean, from an individual point of view, Claire, if, if you or I are compassionate to someone, um, and this is where we have to consider our intentions, we do get a dopamine hit, right? We, we our, our oxytocin increases, we feel better. Um, so you have to make sure you're doing it for the right reason, not just because you're on a, a, a dopamine, um, it's, it's, it's not because you're searching for the dopamine. Um, interestingly, compassion improves your resilience. So um, I was actually working with a coaching client yesterday who, by his own admission is his own toughest critic and he's quite hard on himself and he beats himself up and he hasn't done things right and actually when you're compassionate towards yourself you actually bounce back more quickly from adversity so it's in his interest to be more compassionate to himself he was he was as a very senior ops person he this was a, a whole different view of the world for him and by the end of it he was actually doing he was practicing very quickly and, and was really enjoying the fact that he could do something differently um Compassion is shown to decrease levels of burnout. Um, there's some really interesting information about um, our, the cells in our bodies. So um, there's things, it's something called um, cellular inflammation levels. And if they're very, very high, which is often typical in people who've got high stress individuals, which may include some coaching clients, let's be honest, who often are coming to a coach because they are very worked up and stressed. Um, those high levels actually correlate with, with some pretty unpleasant diseases, even some cancers and things like that, because the cell is is basically stressed. Um, and when you're compassionate towards other people and do things for other people, it's a form of happiness. It, it, it's a eudaimonic happiness rather than a hedonistic. It's not going shopping or drinking cocktails on the beach. It's doing something for someone else. And that, that ability to reduce someone else's suffering actually reduces that cellular inflammation at it. At, at that level in our body so it, it's incredible in terms of what it does as individuals when you start to look at how individuals connect um it's probably quite obvious to say that being compassionate is is going to improve your social connectedness i mean that's 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 fairly obvious but actually if you're not well socially connected it seems now to be it's understood to be more detrimental to your health than even things like high blood pressure smoking even obesity so it's, it's really good for you as an individual and it's good for connection. And then if you look at organisations, so if coaches are working organisations or the people they're working with are leading those organisations, um, when people perceive uh, an organisation to be more compassionate, and I say perceive, we can come back to that, it's there's no strict measure, but the perception is actually what matters. Um, so people turn up for a start, so absenteeism decreases. Um, when they do turn up, they're more engaged their engagement levels go up, they do more things for other people without being asked, they are more satisfied in their roles, they perform better, um, there's better psychological safety, the, the ability to dissent and to take risks because people know that they'll, they'll be okay. And, and it even improve, improves conflict resolution. So when dissent happens or, or arguments happen, people are able to actually work through that in a completely different way. Um, so it's something I find really interesting. Compassion has such a, there's almost a distaste in, in organisations around it. And yet, if you look at all those benefits from individual and organisational aspects, that's that it's incredibly powerful. It's uniquely powerful in that regard. As you're speaking, I'm thinking about organisational values and mission and all of that kind of stuff. But and as, and so and compassion is the practical application isn't it, of what organisations think, say, want to be like? Yeah, I, I think that, that's a useful observation. It's uh, and, and even in, you're making me think about things like, um, if I was to turn up to number 10 Downing Street today, if they, if they would let me in, and uh, I doubt it, and I was to say, look, you know, I have a way that you can, uh, across the NHS, 
improve diagnoses, improve the, the likelihood of patients actually adhering to their treatment plan, improve patient outcomes, reduce doctor and nurse stress, um, reduce waiting lists because um, you can reduce uh, the amount of time it takes to get an accurate diagnosis by around 20%. They would go, oh, great, fantastic, tell me what it is. And I and I think we're so disconnected sometimes from, from who we really are as people because when my answer would be, teach compassion in the NHS to the caregivers. So they're not being empathetic and they're not being altruistic. That that would be the outcome. That is the result. But but because people, oh well it's not, it's not, it's not something that they, they think is, you know, it's not a pill for a start. It's not a drug that I can give. Um, it doesn't feel for a lot of people, it doesn't feel tangible and, and strong enough. And actually I think that's the really important thing is the outcomes speak for themselves when people start to see them. People who perceive their doctor to be compassionate have better outcomes than the ones whose doctors they perceive to be even neutral, never mind unpleasant. They, if they even just think they're neutral, they still won't have as good outcomes. Um, it's, it's incredibly powerful. It's, it's you know, a lot of organisations talk about their values, but the ones that actually live them, they're the ones that would probably make a difference. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it's funny, isn't it? Because as you said that, you know, an easy pushback is, aren't, isn't, every, you know, aren't, don't people go into healthcare because they're compassionate? Don't coaches come into coaching because they're compassionate? Yeah, great, great question. Um, I think often they do, and I think it gets beaten out of us. I mean, I, I subscribe to the, it, it's a Buddhist um, application that says that we all have good in nature, we all have compassion in ourselves somewhere. But it's also becoming people like Richie Biazis, um, who who does a lot of work around this, and people um, in in Michigan, Michigan State, who are doing a lot of uh, work on looking at babies and compassion. They actually think that, you know, we, we are they they're saying yes, we are born with compassion in us. Babies as young as 12, 18 months prefer puppets who act compassionately as opposed to puppets who are mean to others. And and I do think that we're born with it, but but. Being compassionate isn't, as I say, it's got a bit of a reputational issue. It's seen as a bit weak. It's seen as a bit. It's not quite, uh, not quite the way to behave, especially in a in a in an organisation. Um, yeah, I think it's tough for people to to be able to stand up. Sometimes the toughest thing to do is to stand up and be compassionate. I know that from experience. Yeah. Mm. So, how would you define compassion? Um. Well, I have I have a slightly different um, take on it to other people. So the, the traditional definition of compassion is so overall it's a response to suffering. So that's where it's different from something like kindness. So if it's if it was your birthday, Claire, and I brought you cake, then I'd be being kind. But it doesn't necessarily mean that I'm responding to suffering. Depends on how you feel about your birthday. Um, but the cake. <laughs> that was, I'd be quite happy with the cake. Um, so, but. It is a response to suffering, and most definitions of compassion are a three-part uh, model. And they basically have, there's an awareness part, which is noticing that someone is suffering. There is the feeling part, which is where you can feel how they might feel, and that's empathy. And then there's an action part, and the action is what turns the empathy into compassion. So that's the <laughs> traditional model, the three-part model. I have an additional step in between the feeling and the action, which is called the appraisal step. And that appraisal step is about a number of things. It's about appraising your own resources, which I think is so important for coaches. How do you resource yourself? How do you make sure that you're okay? You know, that, that, that thing that is overused, but it's true. 
you can't pour from an empty jug, right? It's it's the same thing. Um, it's also about appraising your role. So if you are a coach, then you may have a different response. If you're a parent, you'll have a different response to someone's suffering. If you if you're a, a senior leader in an organization, your your actions, your choice, or indeed your silence will be amplified. So it's about considering those those sorts of things. And also, and I think this is really important, <clears throat> excuse me, for coaches, is also thinking about your um, patterns of behavior. So most coaches would know about Cartman's drama triangle. You know, we, we have to make sure that we're not rushing in as a rescuer, because if we do, then we're reinforcing somebody else being a victim to a persecutor. So that's about making sure that we're neutral and that we can see when we're trying to to be recruited into one of those roles. Um, we also need to think about things like, um, it's a very old book, it's about 100 years old, Brenna, um, The Games People Play. So oh, yes. Eric Brenner, I love Eric Brenner. I, I, I read the beginning of the book and it's very strange because it's as if, you know, 1920s housewife scenarios, which are slightly uh, unusual to me, shall we say. Um <laughs> But actually, the games he talks about are, are patterns of behaviour. That's what he was really talking about. And he, you know, I've got, you know, you son of a bleep is, is a game. And um, yes, but is a game. You know, as a coach, we can offer suggestions. And if we start to hear them, well, yeah, but let me tell you that why that wouldn't work. That's, that's a pattern of behaviour our clients may not be aware of. So it's also about looking at those and, and understanding those patterns. Um, and it's what when you do this appraisal, it's also about things like appraising your your intention. So as I said, you get a dopamine and oxytocin hit. But what why are you being compassionate? Are are you doing it because it's it's a, a hot current thing and everyone's talking about it and it seems to be good to be a compassionate leader? Or are you doing it because you genuinely want to make a difference? Because they're very different and, and people will pick up on when things are very different. And I think it's important for organizations to consider this because the danger in something like compassion is because we can see this host of benefits is that organizations could start to say, well, actually, do you know what? Let's train everybody to be compassionate. Let's, because the more compassionate we are, oh, what's Kirsty said? Oh, she said that people would turn up, they'd work harder, they'd care more. So, so it could be used like anything. It could be used for um, unpleasant purposes. So I think we have to consider our intention. So there's quite a lot in that appraisal step. It doesn't mean that when someone's suffering, and it's immediate, you you sit there and ponder for 20 minutes. It means that you're coming at it from a place where you're considered and you're resourced and you're you're kind of aware of what you're bringing to a situation as well, which again, as a coach, I would always say is so important. Um, think about how you show up and think about when to get yourself out, out of the way. Um, so yes, that's that, that my model is slightly different because of that extra step. I really wish your book had come out before we'd finished ours. <laughs> Well, you can do a second edition. <laughs> well, I'm just thinking. <laughs> I'm all... The thing is, it's not printed yet because what I've done with other books is I write, I start writing the second edition as soon as the first edition comes out and I annotate all the notes and put this, put this here, put this here. Um, no, I actually remember you put something on, uh, I think it was on LinkedIn and you, you were you were packaging books up to send to people and you accidentally yes. <laughs> your own annotated version. And, you know, I've learned from that, Claire, because... I've kept a, a copy of my book as well, which I've already begun to annotate and write it. And I have stickers all over the front so that nobody could ever assume it was a book. So I'll tell you, that was a, that was a disaster averted. So listeners, that was my, that included a whole new chapter 
And talking to you now, Kirsty, I can't remember what the whole new chapter is. I'd have to look at it to know. So I wouldn't have been able to recreate it. Oh, Lord. Well, thank you. You shared the learning and it's helped me. I'm glad. I'm glad. So as soon as as soon as the first edition of The Human Behind the Coach arrives, I'll be in there going, because we've got a whole bit about self-compassion. Ah. And and I absolutely love your bit about self-compassion, where you say self-compassion is comprised of three elements, mindfulness, self-kindness and common humanity. Mm. And that's um, that's actually it's Kristen Ness. That's how she describes yeah. it. Yeah. Um, but I I find self compassion fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating. And part of the reason I find it fascinating is because of Kristen Neff herself. Because she, I mean, she's now seen as this guru of self compassion. And and Chris, her her husband, you know, they 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 do all these courses and they have amazing free um, resources available online. So any coach or anybody can go and get them as well. But one of the things I think is fascinating about her is she, her original area of study was self-esteem. So she was looking into how do we feel better about ourselves? How do we how, how do we say feel good and things are tough? And the problem with self-esteem, in, in and this is my my take on not hers, is twofold. The first is if if you imagine Claire that you're having a horrible time, you're you're suffering, you're you're whatever is going on in your life that, that means that you're in, in a place of suffering that's probably the the hardest time to access thoughts about how great you are yes. so self-esteem at the time you most try and access it, it, it it's completely intangible it disappears through your fingers right and the other problem with self-esteem is that it's got a tendency to be comparative so if i want to boost my self-esteem and i want to say oh i'm you know i've written this amazing book I could start to to look up other people who've written books and see how they're doing on the Amazon list, right? I mean, let's be honest, it, it's all six-figure numbers, so it's kind of academic, but it's a comparative. So if I say, oh, I want to feel like I look great, I have to look at other people and go, well, I'm prettier than her, or I'm more, you know, yeah. it, it's got this horrible comparative element. And actually, you know, if I want to be smart or funny, by what measure, it's in comparison. And actually, the great thing about self-compassion is it takes you back to yourself. So it doesn't rely on that comparator because the problem with the comparator is it's a hungry beast that will never be sated because there'll always be someone who's smarter, prettier, funnier, more articulate than, than, than me or you. So, you know, we, we say being self-compassionate is it's A, you can access it better and B, it takes you back to yourself. So if you're talking about the human side of, of the coach, I think it's incredibly important. It's incredibly important. Um, and actually, my psychology master's, my my research there, I did on um, self compassion and how it impacts stress, anxiety, and depression levels in leaders. And it was a really simple. Um, I gave them a three and a half minute uh, recording of a self compassion meditation, which was my voice that they had to listen to once a day for a month. It didn't matter when they listened to it, as long as they weren't driving or doing something um, like that. Um, they could they could listen to it with their eyes closed. They, you know, they could just sit, put up the headphones and listen to it. And, um, I actually had one person who he was an army captain, and he he basically used to go to the bathroom and lock himself in the cubicle because he said anytime he tried to sit and listen for three and a half minutes, people would clap and go, "Are you okay?" Because he was sitting with his eyes closed. Um, but all they had to do was listen to this once a month, once uh, once a day for a month. 
and um i mean i i wouldn't have obviously talked about it in the book so much if it wasn't the case but the stress anxiety depression markers were all significantly reduced so by by people's own um description of their own um of their own well-being so i i do find self-compassion fascinating it's often something we feel a little bit uncomfortable about it's a bit oh is it a bit navel gazing is it a bit sort of self-absorbed but it's actually not it's not any of those things it's a really useful tool when things go wrong you know as a coach if we think oh i really messed up asked a really stupid question there or i shouldn't have done that you know it's a useful tool for us for us all yeah and i think coaches often make what's going on about themselves <laughs> i need to do this i did this badly or whatever and actually it's not it's often not about us. It's about the interplay between us and someone else, isn't it? So, yeah, absolutely. And I so, and in the um, the the three elements of self compassion, I think the the bit that people find most difficult, in my experience, is the self kindness. We we speak to ourselves generally in a way that we would never accept someone else speaking to us. That you know, oh, Kirsty, you're such an idiot. Why did you do that? You know, if, if someone else said that to me, I'd probably go, well, hang on a minute, you know. <laughs> um, and, and I think it being gentler on ourselves, being being kinder to ourselves is is so important because that's how we will relax, feel more comfortable, feel happier, and then we can make smarter decisions because we're in a calm place. We're coming from a, a different place from when we're in fe- the grip of fear or, or anger. But yeah, it's not always about us exactly and when we make it about us it becomes about us (laughs) (laughs) absolutely yes so i'm curious about the response that you're getting in the world from (laughs) from people who disagree Mm. um so I'll, I'll, it's an interesting question. So when I was doing my first dissertation around this, about organisations, this is the one where I wanted to do a um, number of organisations and say, how compassionate do people feel? So I would measure people's um, levels of perceived compassion in the organisation. And I would also measure levels of effective commitment, which we might, it's a uh, fancy way of saying employee engagement effectively. And I did what any self-respecting researcher did when I needed to find those organisations. I went to all my friends who were in high-powered jobs and I said, hello, I really need you to help me do this. And one of my dear friends who worked at that time in a financial services company said, yeah, yeah no problem, I'll, I'll email the HR director. So he sent an email to the HR director. And she replied to him and obviously didn't realise that he and I were friends and didn't realise I would see her response. And in her response, she said, um, well, we're not really going to do this. I mean, it sounds a bit soft and fluffy. And I think she should talk to somewhere like John Lewis, where they care about their staff. Um, and I wish your listeners could see the look that you just in your face or your jaw just drops. I, 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 I fact as well, but I, and, and I thought, great, that's really good. Um, but it's not that unusual a response from a, a stereotype organisation, if you like. So, yeah. and that was now sort of. Um, about 10 years ago so hopefully things have moved on thankfully he's left the company because i sent him the time if that's how your hr director feels about people may i suggest you find somewhere that's more human to work um and a lot's happened in the last 10 years there's a lot more um 
people talk a lot more about humanizing the workplace. I think uh, we're accepting, particularly since the pandemic, that, that human beings are, are actually more important. There's no such thing as a human resource versus human beings. Um, but interestingly, I then did, um, I, so I work, as you know, at the moment at London Business School, and we have um, hundreds of MBAs who come in every year. They're incredibly smart, very, very bright, very capable. Um, and I did a, a workshop on self-compassion with some of them last year, just as a little test, just to see what happened. And I think I had my own preconceptions challenged because I think I thought, mm, they're not going to like this. They're going to be like, what's she talking about? You know, where's the numbers? Um, and actually, it was fascinating, Claire, because one or two of them came up to me at the end and said that it completely blew their mind. And one of them wrote to me afterwards to tell me that it was basically the, one of the most um, powerful days of his MBA, because he said, I've never treated myself, nobody's ever treated me as gently as I treated myself. And it's completely changed how he feels in life, but it also has changed how he now treats his team, which I thought was really interesting. And the reason it really challenged me was that I think I then had a perception that a bunch of LBS MBAs were going to be a bit arrogant, a bit disinterested. And actually, the door, I think, is more ajar than we realise. I think people are calling out for a different way of being in the world. I think organisations are starting to realise, yes, that maybe partly because there are benefits, but I think people are starting to realise that there has to be a different way. Maybe this is it. You were talking, I remembered that, I think it was Peter Pan. I had a storybook when I was a child, which had two characters in it. And one was Mrs. Do As You Would Be Done By. <laughs> and another one was Be Done By As You Did. Oh. I, I'd call the second one Mrs. Karma. I don't know Mrs. Karma. <laughs> but but do, as you, do As You Would Be Done By. You know, sometimes you lose the connection with that, don't you? Because the culture will carry you along in a, in a different way. Yes. And I think that's about, um, I mean, some of the, when we met is, um, we met in doing some um, system dynamics work together. So for me, there's a systemic piece to this, which is about, as a leader, our job is to provide compassion that's needed there and then but it's also to create and to seed that system so that if we walk away or if we leave whatever happens the system can continue the compassion you can't rely on one person it can't be Claire's job to be compassion it can't be Kirsty's job you know I'd love LBS yeah. you'd like to be the director of compassion tomorrow it, <laughs> it's not going to happen and even if it did yeah. my answer would have to be no because you can't outsource those things they they have got to be a, a part of, of how we are. And it, it you know, that I think it, we're noticing how disconnected people are. We're noticing how, you know, in the pandemic, what did we miss? We missed connection with other people. Um, and this is about connecting in a useful way, to your point, in a way that you would want to be treated, in a way that if you put more good out there, there will be more good out there, in a way. Um, and that's that's so important. Yeah. So practically, mm. to our listeners who are in the workplace or our listeners who are coaches, mm. what practical things might they do if they were to do one or two things today? Okay. Um, we mean apart from buy the book, not just apart the book. from buy the book, which is called 
Compassionate Leadership <laughs> by Kirsty Drummond Papworth. The link is in the show notes. Apart from that, yes. Apart from that, okay. <laughs> we'll just rip out page 49 and put the bit back of it now. Um, apart from that, I guess I would, um, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll give you two or three um, small sort of um, immediate things that you could do. The, the first would be noticing. So in that, that, that model we talked about, whether it's mine or the traditional one, the first step is noticing. And that matters so much because if we don't notice suffering, obviously the chances of us doing something about it are are pretty pretty slim. Now, I'm going to be honest, Claire, I used to think it was a pretty useless step. I used to think, well, goodness sake, how can people not see suffering? It's everywhere. How can you not notice it? But then people would confide in me that they that they didn't notice and that they didn't see. So I think sometimes slowing down for long enough to actually look and look for what's spoken and obvious, but also look for what's unsaid and unspoken and, and perhaps can't be spoken yet. But I think there's another aspect to noticing, which it's about noticing your own preference. And it can be, you know, just think about your own preference in the in the in the those four steps of the model. Do you have a preference for action, which is probably what mine would be in at the beginning and, and is probably what a lot of coaches um because they want to do something um do you have a preference for feeling is it that you're actually you can really empathize notice your preference of the four steps but also notice the one that you want to avoid uh, what, what's, what's the one where you're least comfortable and for some people it is noticing and for some people some people it's actually for me it was the appraisal step it was i oh, just let's just go on with it we'll, we'll, we'll think about it later um, so I think it's really important to just notice which one you're most comfortable and which one you're least comfortable and you'll probably know that quite quickly and then that's probably quite a useful place to start your compassion journey from um, I think the second step I would encourage is to consider your biases in relation to compassion um, but I mean there's a there's a whole chapter on the book on cognitive bias for, for good reason um, it's it's things like, um, you know, it's easier for us to have compassion for people that we know, for people we like, for people who, who we consider to be like us. Um, I would argue that's favoritism. That's not compassion. We we need to have compassion for everybody. Um, there's a there's a very silly uh, drawing in the book, which is, I think you, you've probably seen it. It's like five or six skeletons. And underneath I've written things like, you know, gay, straight, black, white, because, you know, we, we, we have all these layers and labels, but actually, ultimately, we're, we're all human beings. So it's about extending your compassion and noticing your bias. Um, your biases will impact what you notice, it, even, even at that very basic level. They'll also impact how or whether you respond. Um, they even impact whether you think someone deserves their fate. There's one that I think is fascinating called the Just World Hypothesis. If people have a read about it, you know, do people deserve what comes to them, good or bad? It's an open-ended question. Um, and actually, my favourite bias is the blind spot bias, which is the one that says that um, we're very quick to spot biases in others, um, but we repeatedly fail to notice our own biases, even, and this is the best part, even when we know about the blind spot bias, we still think we're less biased than other people. So to me, that, that second real thing to do today is to really consider the biases. Um, and, and I think I'd throw in as my, my third, because it's always good to have in threes, is, is start small. Don't try and change everything in one day. So, so start small, but, but start. Um, and I guess the thought I would probably leave your listeners with in that respect is there is a horrible um, statistic which is that every 40 seconds, someone somewhere in the world dies by suicide. 
40 seconds. And coincidentally, there were some compassion researchers in the States who found that a very simple verbal compassionate intervention can significantly reduce anxiety in cancer patients. And that verbal compassionate interaction of seeing how someone's doing took 40 seconds. So if if we only do one thing, spend less than a minute with someone and it might make a huge difference to their life is what I would probably suggest. Something to sit with, isn't it? Mm. We never know the impact we have on other people. Mm. And that's a useful thought for a coach. We don't know, ultimately, the impact we have. Yeah. And it's about how we do it, not how long we do it for. Exactly. And where the intention comes from. Yeah. 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 Well, Kirsty, I think we need to have you back to talk more. <laughs> Definitely. Cracking uh, book listeners, I'll put the details in the show notes. How do people get in touch with you if they want to talk to you about uh, speaking or working in their organisation? I, I do quite work and I do speak. I'm actually speaking at an NHS conference at the end of September on, um, I'm talking about self-compassion for suicide treatment for people who work in, in that area. So yeah, I'm more than happy to do things like that. Um, I'm on LinkedIn, so Kirsty German Patworth. Um, there aren't many uh, Kirsty German Patworths around, so that's quite easy to find. Um, and I, my own website is tangeringthistle.com, and they can find me on Kirsty, which is K I R S T I E, at tangeringthistle.com. Happy to support and to do whatever I can. Well, thank you so much. I know that this is an episode that's going to have people coming and responding and commenting and all those great things. So um, comment on socials, listeners, if you want to keep on the conversation, because it'd be really good to do that. And I hope we can have you back one day, Kirsty. I would love to. I would love to. Thank you for inviting me, Claire, and best of, best of luck with it. finishing off the next book. Thank you. Thank you. So I'm Claire Pedrick and I've been in conversation with Kirsty Drummond-Papworth. Bye-bye, everyone. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today, we'd love you to share the podcast with a friend or leave a comment on social media. And if you'd like to become a regular at The Coaching Inn, you can subscribe on Podbean and all major podcast channels. We look forward to welcoming you next time. You've been listening to The Coaching Inn. 3D Coaching's virtual pub. For more information, check out 3dcoaching.com.